For some reason, I thought the topic tonight was sports. <laughs> what, 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 what happened? <laughs> All right. Hey,、uh, let me just situate myself a little bit. This is really interesting because,、um, uh, in a short bit, I want to just say a prayer and、uh, we'll get into our topic. But,、uh, If some of you guys were here、uh, yesterday,、uh, I had shared with you that I was raised here in San Francisco,、uh, went to elementary school at Sherman, middle school at Aptis, high school at Lowell.、Uh, my parents immigrated in 77 with my brothers and I, and、uh, we worked at a grocery store on Pine Street between Taylor and Jones for many, many years. It was the first Korean American、uh, grocery store in the Bay Area that we're aware of. And,、uh, So it's just incredibly special. And I said this yesterday, but I want to just say it again. What an honor and a joy it is. It's particularly really special that this is the first church that I've spoken at since I left 30 years ago. Now, I've been back to San Francisco to teach on a few occasions. The first time was around political will, interestingly enough, with Mayor Ed about six, seven,、uh, six, seven years ago. Uh, and then I spoke at a couple of nonprofit events, including one that was、uh, founded by one of your members named Ruthie Kim、uh, last year or two years ago.、Uh, and that was great. And so、uh, today I get to come and speak to you a bit about the topic of politics.、Uh, let me say a prayer first.、Uh, you're probably not nervous. I am very nervous. <laughs>、uh, you're probably just waiting to just bite my head off in the name of Jesus. So let's pray. God, thank you again so much for the joy and privilege that it is to be able to have hard conversations. God, our posture is that we want to come here as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I think I can speak for maybe all of our families in the sense that there is a level of both beautiful things and hard things, life giving things and dysfunctional things. It's in that spirit that we come in asking for wisdom and discernment that you fill us, O Holy Spirit, with peace and grace, but also conviction. Conviction to pursue your kingdom here on this earth. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, let me、uh, give you a little bit of a roadmap. I'm a big roadmap person so that you have an idea kind of what to expect and what not to expect. Because oftentimes, whenever I speak, either on interpersonal conversations or if I'm teaching or preaching about politics, certain topics already in your mind, there are things that you're probably wanting me to say or not want me to say. There are certain topics, just by nature, when you come in, you've already crafted about 60% of my lecture. So I, I kind of want to give you a roadmap so that you can be disappointed now <laughs> as opposed to later. Okay? So the first thing I'd like to do is, as、uh, your pastor Dave shared, I'm going to be、uh, taking out some excerpts of this book it's in its final copy editing right now. And I'm going to use excerpts of it to first kind of give you a big picture view about a theology of politics, about the why. 
And it's possible, in fact, I know that when we get into the granular of things, like on the ground, in this room, just even in this small room, there are going to be so many different interpretations of how we go about things on the granular level. However, I think from a big picture level, which is something that we have to regularly look up to when we're so consumed by the granular, just to remind ourselves that we're really not at war with one another. And so I wanna first give you a kind of a theology about the why this conversation matters. Because I absolutely believe that this conversation matters. I then wanna go into another big cursory overview about the 10 chapters. This book is kind of based upon the 10 commandments. The initial title of the book was 10 commandments for how Christians engage politics. And uh, the publisher that I'm working with eventually said, let's land and thou shalt not be a jerk. Put your, cover on the, uh, your face on the cover. And I said, no, let's not do that. <laughs> and we're not gonna have the time to go into all of the details of those chapters. We just don't have time. But after I go through those chapters, I then wanna just make a little pivot I want to just share with you maybe three tangible takeaways to explain to you why politics matter and how that should affect our everyday life. That's what I'm hoping to do for the next 45 or so minutes, and then we'll stop. Nobody will boo. <laughs> Standing ovation. <laughs> You'll then say, 40 more minutes. 40 more minutes. Sorry. And then uh, Dave will come up and then we'll do kind of a Q&A together. Authors or pastors or speakers might feel compelled uh, to invest their time researching, speaking, writing for many different reasons. Some might be drawn by a particular excitement or passion and others might feel a sense of burden. And I want you to know that both are very, very important. For myself, as a pastor and a leader in my respective community, my calling is to try to help guide churches, other leaders, and Christians in our Christian or current landscape. So what I'm saying is, it's not excitement that motivates me to speak on this topic. It really isn't. Wading into these conversations, wading into topics about gun control, about immigration reform, about issues of pro-life, about sanctity of life, I don't have the time, but there has been some incredibly crazy stories that have transpired in the last 20 years as a pastor. Just to give you a glimpse, rocks thrown into our church building. A crazy video that someone made connecting me to a mass killer. Death threats to our family. 
where I had to actually physically move my wife and kids out of San Francisco or out of Seattle to the other side of the state of Washington. People screaming the craziest obscene comments. Go back home. So when I told my wife I was going to write on this book, she said, are you sure? And in fact, I stopped writing this book four times because it was just too intense. It was just too difficult. And as I was writing it, in my mind, I was imagining what might come about. And just in case someone might listen to this on the podcast, my name is Joe Wong. <laughs> These are tricks you learn along the way. So it's actually more of a burden. I feel incredibly burdened. And I suspect that part of the reason why you're here is that uh, you're also burdened as well for various reasons. So I feel compelled to write and to share about this particular topic. I'm burdened for the church and the aspect of discipleship and depth and Christ-likeness that often feels in short supply in our culture. Now, I want you to realize I'm not an expert on this matter. I did an interview recently with Rolling Stones about this topic, and they basically said, uh, who are you? <laughs> and I said, I'm, I'm a nobody. When it comes to this topic, I didn't major in political science in college, nor am I a politics junkie or an expert on all things at the intersection of faith and politics. I've never run for public office or served on anyone's campaign. I've never publicly endorsed anyone, although I unsuccessfully ran for middle school president at Aptis Middle School. 13% of the votes is what I remember. So, as I shared, I'm deeply concerned and at the same time deeply grieved by the state of the political affairs in our society. Just think about some of the recent events, and I'm not even talking about the craziness and the chaos of what's going on right now, but I'm thinking about processing recent news of pipe bombs mailed to political leaders, shootings at Jewish synagogues, a mass shooting at a mosque in New Zealand, shootings recently in Fresno, down in California and other places, and the list goes on and on. These events are despicable and should be condemned by everyone, but we should not pretend this happened overnight. The unconscionable is possible when over the years we've normalized violent rhetoric, mocking, bullying, and the demonization of, quote, the other. Clearly, we can't blame it merely on the broad umbrella of politics, but it's plain to many that something has significantly shifted in our culture and politics to our detriment. Now, within the church... It's all too convenient to blame the larger culture and society. 
As I shared last night in our talk, in the church, it is convenient to kind of blame something in secular culture that ails the world. But I think as it is with many topics, we should be equally concerned by the manner in which Christians are engaging the political machine. For example, certain Christians have altogether dismissed and disengaged themselves from the political process. Either because it's too exhausting or because of the theological bent that shapes their conclusion that as a follower of Jesus, they should only focus on spiritual things. Simultaneously, I'm concerned by Christ followers who appear to be overly obsessed by politics. And by this, I mean we've chosen to justify everything we do for the sake of our political ideologies, views, or convictions. Additionally, I'm concerned by Christians who are heavily influenced by a vision of cultural Christianity and the power we can wield in our society without necessarily being the ways and the heart of Christ. While there are various challenges to Christianity, including secularism, I would submit as one person that the greatest challenge in my opinion, and I know many pastors would disagree with me, but I would submit for consideration that perhaps the greatest challenge is actually within Christianity. It's the temptation to build structures and institutionalism of Christianity, but without a parallel commitment to Jesus. It's politicians and even Christian pastors and leaders who sprinkle on a pinch of Jesus into our thinking, speeches, or sermons, but often in a way that fulfills our agenda or goals. In other words, using Jesus to promote nationalism is simply not the way of Jesus. This is the danger of cultural Christianity that eventually and predictably produces cultural Christians rather than disciples of Jesus. From a political perspective, cultural Christianity is when our theology is held captive by our politics rather than our politics being informed and even transformed by our theology. The danger of this predicament takes us back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve were tempted to be like or even to be God. In other words, the oldest sin, in my opinion, in humanity has been to conform God into our image. So even as you read scriptures today, as you study the word of God, as you study the life of Jesus, if you're never convicted, never challenged, never disrupted by the word of God, it's quite possible that you formed God into your own image. 
so what are the dangers and implications of cultural Christianity? Imagine a movement, Christianity, that conforms to a culture and all of its shifts and changes and no longer adheres to the scandalous, radical love, grace teachings, and life of Jesus Christ. Imagine an institutional Christianity that's obsessed with power, influence, and platform without a commitment to the countercultural commitment of Jesus Christ. Here it is, a commitment to empire rather than the kingdom of God. How else could we explain what transpired in Germany with the rise of Hitler and Nazism? In Germany, at the start of World War II, some historians report that up to 94% of the nation were professing Christians. How could there be such dissonance except to acknowledge the ills and poison of cultural Christianity? How else could we explain why so many would profess to be Christians and yet choose to become seduced by the evil propaganda of Hitler? But it wasn't just merely an anomaly in Nazi Germany. We have witnessed this throughout history when Christian institutions go to bed with power and then embody practices that are actually antithetical to the gospel. This was evident when religious leaders use erroneous theology, for example, to dismiss and judge the poor in the book of Amos. An incredibly prophetic political book. This was evident when missionaries engaged in horrific practices of colonization and abuse of power with Native American indigenous boarding schools. During the summer of 2019, so just this past summer, I was invited, I was invited by World Relief to lead a small group of American pastors, women and men of different ages, to travel to Rwanda for the purpose of listening and learning about truth-telling, confession, forgiveness, justice, and reconciliation from Rwandan citizens, activists, and pastors. Now, in case you're asking why Rwanda, tragically, the people and nation of Rwanda experienced what has often been referred to as the Rwandan genocide in 1994, where for about a hundred days, just three days according to some, right after Easter Resurrection Sunday, approximately one million Rwandans were killed, including more than 800,000 minority Tutsis at the hands of extremist Hutus. The reasons are complex. It involves decades of painful history, decades of dehumanization, which then makes room for dangerous policies. It involves colonization in the hands of Belgium. But what's not complex, and this is so tragic, is that Rwandans killed Rwandans. Family killed family. Neighbors 
killed neighbors. Even husbands killed their Tutsi wives. Christians killed fellow Christians. Now, what makes this tragedy even more incredulous is that during the time of the genocide, both ethnic groups were, you guessed it, predominantly Christian. According to one author, quote, as over 90% of the Rwandan population claimed and still claims adherence to the Christian faith. As I walk through the halls and exhibits of the Rwandan Genocide Memorial in Kigali, where it's reported that about 250,000 victims were brought to be buried underground, I could only ask the question that maybe some of you are asking right now, like, how could this happen? as hard as it is to believe, because I want you to know my lens in speaking about this is from a pastor and as a follower of Jesus. This topic, this book, is not written for the larger audience. It's written to the church. And so my question in going to Rondo is also figuring out what was the role of the church in doing justice work, but also its complicity as well. Sadly, many places of worship, churches, and parishes of various size and denominations were complicit in this genocide. Places like Natarama Church, where more than 5,000 people were massacred by Hutu soldiers and militias. You'll read stories about how churches and places of worship became death traps where sometimes pastors would literally trick their own congregants into a place, lock places and the doors so they could no longer leave. During our time there, we had the privilege of hearing from both victims and perpetrators, from citizens and government officials, and from Catholic and Protestant leaders and pastors. And I'll never forget this. They gave us a stern warning about the dangers of what they see in American politics. The dangers of placing any allegiance over our obedience to Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. In essence, the dangers of cultural Christianity. Some of you are probably thinking, I care about politics as you should. I want to care, I just don't know how to go about it. And I want you to realize you're actually at a great place. You should be at a church wrestling with other brothers and sisters, people of all different backgrounds and ages, and wrestle over these matters. I want you to realize that even though I have been a pastor for many years, I'm turning 50 next year, I've written a book on politics. I still wrestle over this topic. It feels jarring. So many of us are wondering, how can we be faithful to Christ, remain engaged, and maintain our integrity? Now, it's not my intent tonight to tell you who to vote for or how to vote on any specific issues. Although during our Q&A, when it's not recorded, 
I might. <laughs> now, as I go about our 10 larger topics, it's quite possible that some of you might, again, and rightly and fairly, you might say, you know, uh, Eugene, you can't play both sides. I've heard that very often over the last 20 years as a pastor. You're too cowardly. Remember, Joe Wong. <laughs> you have no backbone. I've heard that. You're being too political. I've heard that many times. You're too privileged. Why can't you just focus on Jesus? My favorite. And what I'm telling you is that when we choose to engage this and many topics, this is very important for you to hear. To some, you're too conservative. To others, you're too liberal. And I'm sharing this not to give ourselves an opt-out I just want you to know that to be a Christ follower is to be faithful amid tension. To stay engaged, to remain hopeful, to love anyway, to walk with integrity, to fight for the vulnerable, and to bear witness to the love, mercy, and grace of Christ. When people ask, what's your politics? I just said it. Now, we all know it's becoming increasingly difficult, but such is our call as followers of Jesus. And it's not just merely what we believe, but also how we engage. When people think that politics is merely the product of a governmental process, I would disagree. I think the how actually also matters to the soul of a person, of a community, and also of a nation. This is the reason why after every election, everyone feels disgusted. Because we realize something is off. Now, hear this well. I'm gonna just jump a little forward. This is really important. Politics And I hope that if there's anyone here that feels like it doesn't matter, it doesn't fit into my narrative of my theology, I want you to realize you need a new theology. I say that respectfully, politics matter. Here's why. I'm gonna say it in the most simple, succinct way why politics matter. Politics matter because politics inform policies that ultimately impact people. And the last time I read the Bible, it's emphatically clear that people matter to God, including and especially people who are marginalized, oppressed, forgotten, and on the fringes of our larger society. To speak to that just a little bit, I often tell Christians that what we need is a 
a new imagination of the whole gospel. Now, I want to explain this theology of the whole gospel and how that should inform then our understanding of politics. The whole gospel, and for us as Christians, you have to realize that our engagement with this and other matters ought to be because we are now sons and daughters of God. It shapes our identity. It begins to inform, conform, transform, renew our minds and the way that we engage these things. So what is a imagination of the whole gospel and why does it matter to our politics? Well, the whole gospel begins with this truth that Jesus is Lord. And sometimes when Christians say, you know what, Christians should not be political. Pastor Eugene, you shouldn't mention politics, especially from the pulpit. I often tell them, do you understand how incredibly scandalous that statement, Jesus is Lord, was back then? That in itself was a political statement to tell followers of Caesar, Caesar is Lord. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Jesus is Lord. That statement in itself declares that our allegiance is not to earthly kings and queens and monarchs and leaders, but ultimately it's to Jesus. So what, again, is this imagination of the whole gospel? The whole gospel, Jesus is Lord, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that no one would perish, those who place their trust in Jesus. The good news, the gospel, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus saves. Now, I know this might not necessarily be the most palatable thing to say in a very fast-changing, pluralistic world like the United States and other places. I still believe with every single fiber of my life that Jesus saves, that Jesus came to rescue sinners like me and you. And while we should be wise in how we articulate these things in a fast-changing world, I pray that we would never grow timid or weary in declaring this gospel news that Jesus saves. The problem is that we've somehow hijacked the whole gospel into a very singular monolithic perspective of the gospel that Jesus saves and in our consumer Western-centric world, it always becomes about, well, I'm saved, I got a ticket to heaven, I'm good. So it becomes about me, myself, I, my quiet time, my devotions, my small group, my church, my family, God blessed me. Thank you, Lord. Hashtag blessed. <laughs> now, I'm not suggesting that those things aren't true. But when we reduce the whole gospel merely into Jesus saves, I actually think that not only is it a twisted gospel, a dangerous gospel, I actually think it's a false gospel. 
the whole gospel declares that yes, Jesus saves, and in addition to that good news, the glorious news is that Jesus is also at work in a broken world, redeeming, reconciling, restoring this world. And we're in this very beautiful and yet difficult tension of being resurrection people, according to one person, in a very broken Friday world. The kingdom of God is here, but yet it's not fully here. Welcome to tension. So the whole gospel declares that not only does Jesus save, but that Jesus cares about this world. The whole gospel declares that Jesus loves the brokenhearted. Jesus loves the forgotten. That Jesus loves the poor. That Jesus sees those who are forgotten and marginalized. That immigrants and refugees matter to God. As unpopular as it might be, the unborn still matter to God. I know you're writing my lecture in your head right now. You can email me at joewong at gmail.com. I feel so bad for Joe Wong. Is there a Joe Wong here? This could be really bad. And if we believe this, then we have to acknowledge that we seek to be faithful followers of Jesus in the midst of that tension. Now, I'm jumping all over the place, but oftentimes when we talk about politics, our natural first question is, what's your politics? Are you a Democrat or Republican? And in my mind, I think to myself, is it possible to have politics be fully embodied by broken human institutions. Consider this sharp rebuke from Thomas Merton for both progressives and conservatives alike in one of his books. He says, quote, I see little real substance in the noisy agitations of progressives who claim to be renewing the church and who are either riding some rather silly bandwagon or caught up in factional rivalries. As for conservatives, they are utterly depressing in their tenacious clinging to meaningless symbols of dead power, their Baroque inertia, their legalism. This was written a long time ago. Let me close. Remember, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and not the kingdom of our party or respective country. And since this statement likely will elicit strong pushback and feelings, we have to note there's a big difference between patriotism and nationalism. So go ahead, be patriotic. I am. I am an immigrant and a child of parents who were born in what is now called North Korea. When they were children, there was only one Korea before the devastating Korean War separated and divided both a nation and millions of families. 
We immigrated in 1977 when I was six years old. I am one of the millions of immigrants who made their way to the United States. And while my story might be unique, I'm a proud, naturalized American citizen who would be quick to share with others the important distinction between patriotism and nationalism. What's the difference? Nationalism or nationalism points to a potentially dangerous view of exceptionalism, which is very common in some of the rhetoric that we hear. For example, and for those who identify as Americans, and if you're Canadians living here in San Francisco, God bless you. <laughs> the idea of American exceptionalism can be a dangerous guise for American supremacism. In other words, it functions purely through the lens of worldly power and will do anything to obtain or preserve that power. Now imagine the countercultural stories of Jesus Christ, who must be the central figure of our theology, worship, and life. For example, we must remember the story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, especially in a cultural context in which teachers of the law instructed Jewish people not to wash the feet of others because it was considered too menial and dirty. We are inundated by politics and party and power in these confusing times, but this is precisely why we must be about the kingdom of God. Tonight, if you feel hazy about what the kingdom of God looks like, look to Jesus. He's not a domesticated puppet of our worldly power structures. The crucified and risen Christ is Lord and Savior. Keep looking to Jesus. Let me share with you the 10 chapters of this book, and then I want to talk about more specifically at a granular or 10,000 feet level how this might impact our politics. The first chapter is entitled, Thou Shalt Not Go to Bed with Political Parties. Chapter two is entitled, Thou Shalt Not Be a Jerk. Chapter three, Thou Shalt Listen and Build Bridges. I'll speak more about that a little later. Thou shalt be about the kingdom of God. Thou shalt live out your convictions. Chapter six is thou shalt have perspective and depth. I realize that for myself as well as for others that actually when you get beyond the talking points, many of us just haven't done deep thinking. So we're actually just regurgitating other people's stuff. Chapter seven, thou shalt not lie get played, or be manipulated. Chapter 8, thou shalt pray, vote, and raise your voice. Chapter 9, thou shalt love God and love people. And chapter 10, if I had time, I wish I could read this. Thou shalt believe Jesus remains king. So in my 
remaining 15 or so minutes, let me just give you a little bit about how this might impact um, our politics in some way. I just heard today, because I had coffee with uh, Ruthie and Brian, that uh, you're preaching this Sunday, and you're preaching about the Samaritan woman. Is that right? Okay. What are you preaching on this Sunday? So, um, Joe Wong, and um, I was really present for our coffee conversation. (laughs) Okay. So, in John 4, (laughs) can you edit that out? (laughs) So, in John 4, Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman, I think this is one of the craziest stories. Someday, I'd love to come back and preach on John 4. John 4, verse 4, it reads this. Now, he had to go through Samaria. The reason why I think that's awkward is because you're Jesus. You don't have to do anything. Does that make sense? So when it says that now he had to go through Samaria, he's actually saying that there's a reason and intent, a purpose to everything that Jesus does. Every word, every action, in this case, even a walk. You see, back then, because of tension between Samaritans and those of Jewish descent that emanates from 2 Kings chapter 17, People back then, when they walked north to south, they often avoided going from a straight line. So here I am at point A. If I want to walk to point B where the video camera is running, all I would have to do is simply walk down these steps, walk on a straight line, and I'm there. But what people did back then is that they traveled east, crossed the Jordan River, and took a circuitous route that scholars tell us was about three, three and a half times longer in order to avoid Samaria. Now, why? Because Samaria were occupied by a group of people called Samaritans. And Samaritans over not just years, generations, but centuries of dehumanization, after a while, what transpires is that they saw Samaritans as not fully equal, dirty, unclean, inferior, half-breeds, contaminated, lesser than, dehumanized, otherized, villainized, and it goes on for generations and generations and generations to the point that when you begin to believe in that dehumanized concept of other people, creating policies, that's the easy part. This is why, and I know this might sound really political, but that's okay, it's a topic on politics. I think if hashtags were relevant during this time, John chapter 4 would have been entitled, Hashtag Samaritan Lives Matter. That's why verse 4 says, Jesus had to walk through Samaria. That's why. It reminds me of what St. Francis says in one of his talks. He says, quote, it is no use walking anywhere to preach 
unless our walking is our preaching. So literally, Jesus, this is the whole gospel. We think that Jesus' most important journey was his walk to Golgotha on Calvary, and we shouldn't dispute this. I would suggest to you that in addition to this, Jesus' walk through Samaria gives us actually a fuller perspective of the whole gospel. Both are essential as followers of Jesus. He goes through Samaria with a determined, resolute mind to break down barriers of hatred and cultural, ethnic, racial prejudice to replace these by building bridges of forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, love, and hope. Now, why do politics matter? Because politics, in its most simple definition, is the process by which how decisions are made for people. Now I'll come back to this, but I want to speak to you a bit more about why dehumanization matters. I've been told that my explanation is overtly too simplistic, and I acknowledge it. I believe that the root of all sin is when we misunderstand or misconstrue our identity as followers of God, children of God, but as for sin with others and how we treat others, I believe at most simplistic ways, it's when we dehumanize others, demean, degrade. And as a result, it justifies actions and words and even policies. So back during this time, this doing some research about how those of Jewish descent in power engaged those who were living in Samaria, they often dehumanized them, and in a sense, you could say they had a thuggificational perspective of those who lived in Samaria. And so as a result, it's amazing how globally and historically once you have a dehumanized perspective of people, then at that point, policies is the easy thing to come about. Sadly, even in the church, we've been complicit in some of those things. So just to give you a couple of examples, Nazi referred to Jews as rats. Hutus called Tutsis cockroaches in the Rwandan genocide. Enslaved African Americans were compared to apes or monkeys. When you ask today, why are people so upset when these incidents that seem to be coming up more and more, why should they be enraged? Absolutely, they should be enraged. We should be enraged. Even today, sadly, under the radar of most Americans, you have even these religious radical monks calling the Rohingya minority groups savages and animals in their natural rhetoric. And so as a result, when you see people being raped and pillaged, it just makes sense. See, words matter because words inform worldviews. Worldview informs hearts. Combined, they form the way we interact and intersect with people. Now, let me just share a couple more things. 
stories really matter. And this is the reason why I think there is a fight for how stories are used in our particular culture, including in not just politics, but in religion. Stories can dehumanize, they can delegitimize. Sadly, I want you to realize that there are actually not many, but still people that believe the Holocaust doesn't exist. Part of the tension right now in Japan and Korea is because there are murky details of how the occupation of Korea by Japan is shared in history books. I can go on and on about this, but I don't have time. But I think to myself the importance of how stories are conveyed. Let me jump to this. Last two things, and we'll open it up for Q&A. One of the chapters in the book is about relationships. And I really believe that our politics is skewed because we actually don't have relationships outside other people that confirm our narratives. After the horrific injustice of Michael Brown's shooting in St. Louis, there was some research done around the nature of relationships and friendships. Check this out. In a hundred friend scenario, they asked people of different backgrounds, particularly ethnic backgrounds, in a hundred friend scenario, they, they found that the average white person has 91 white friends. One each a black, Latino, Asian, mixed race, other races, and three friends of unknown race. The average black person, on the other hand, has 83 black friends, eight white friends. Kind of makes sense because there's more white people than African Americans. Two Latino friends. This is very disturbing. Zero Asian friends. What's up? Three mixed-race friends, one other race friend, and four friends of unknown race. For Asian-Americans, one of the most insular group. The reason why I share this is we're having discussions about some of the most pertinent, relevant things around how decisions are made impacting people. And we actually don't know other people. We just don't know other people. And there's something about, not that we become incredibly culturally well-versed or deeply empathetic, but there's something about placing ourselves in a situation that gives us a slightly different perspective. I'll just kind of give you an example. Uh, this past year, I've started biking for the very first time. Out in Seattle, and I love it. But for the last 17, 22 years of living in Seattle, I've hated cyclists. <laughs> Do you know why? Because I drive everywhere. So I look at cyclists and I'm like, ah, they're so irresponsible. And I'll say sometimes horrific things. I don't know who they are, but I'm like, you know, I don't say God bless you. I say other stuff. <laughs> and then something happened. I got on a bike. 
And now that I'm biking, I hate car drivers. <laughs> I mean, it just, I was shocked how it just changed my view because I placed myself in a different situation. Here in the Bay Area, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but there was two Asian American women after the last election, they were so disheartened by the election that they were furious and angry and they probably got on social media to rant about the elected president and all of that kind of stuff. And then as they were assessing themselves, they realized, wait a minute, we want to talk about this with others. And then they realized they don't know a single person that voted Republican. They didn't know a single person. And to their credit, what they realized is that they did some self-reflecting. And so they created a dinner, shared their story, and invited people from different political views to say, would you be willing over dinner to have a conversation? And it started this movement called Make America Dinner Again. <laughs> Anyone gone to one by any chance? You never heard of this? Wow. So they have chapters all over the world now. Glenn Beck actually went to one of these chapters. I went to mine in Seattle. Now, let me just share about this. When I talk about politics, 806, when I talk about politics, people often say, um, you know, Pastor Eugene, um, just focus on Jesus. It's the most common response. Just focus on Jesus. Uh, last year, I was preaching about refugees and immigrants, and this person just got up in the back, stood up, and just screamed, just preach the gospel. And I thought to myself, what happened in our theology that advocating for refugees and immigrants automatically places you in a heretical theology? The reason why politics, why good governance, why justice matters is because I want you to realize we pursue justice as followers of God, not because justice is a fad, justice is politically correct. Here it is, as followers of Jesus, justice matters to us because, not because we worship justice, we worship a just God. Uh, imagine a, uh, a box on this podium here, just for a second. Imagine a, a box. And I know you're not supposed to put God in a box, but just for the sake of this illustration. <laughs> the box represents God. If we were to extract love out of God's character, you would contact all your leaders and pastors and say, you know, we know he's from San Francisco, but no, no more. Never invite this guy back. Because how can we speak or know of God without love? What if we were to extract grace out of God's character? I mean, the only reason why you and I are able to have breath, as far as I'm concerned, is because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. I know it's not um, always fun to talk about the holiness of God, but what if we were to extract holiness out of God's character? 
I love how Isaiah, in his human finitude, the only way that he can grasp and articulate the holiness of God is simply to repeat himself. You are holy, holy, holy. So my question to Christians is, what happened in the church that we've extracted justice out of God's character and called it an agenda, a political thing? So let me go back to this issue, and I'm going to need a handful of you to assist me with this illustration, and I'll close with this. It'll take about maybe 10 minutes here. The common response that I get, and this is just big picture stuff, is um, you're wrong. Uh, You shouldn't talk about politics much. What we need to talk about is heart. If hearts change, then we're good. It's a sin issue. Have you ever heard that? Someone says, well, It's a sin issue if we just resolve sin. And my response to that is, I mean, respectfully, no, duh. Of course. But if we don't acknowledge systems and structures and its complicity in injustice and the role of politics in changing these things, we're being absolutely naive. So for many of us as Christians, our theology, we only focus on the personal, maybe the interpersonal, but we rarely dabble in institutional or structural. Politics matter in that, yes, it's not complete because it can't necessarily always speak to the personal, but it addresses institutional and structural. So let me give you an example. I'm going to use a a few of you. uh, Can I... uh, Dave, can you come up for me just for a second? And um, uh, let me see who else. Um, do you mind if I, do you mind volunteering? Do you mind? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. You, volunteer. Yeah. Um, you mind volunteering? Yeah, yeah. Love your mustache. Okay. <laughs> All right. So uh, tell me your name. Nick. Nick. Dave. Kyle. Mustache man. Okay, so Kyle. <laughs> so check this out. So... For us, this is really important. If, if you remember anything, remember this illustration. As friends, what anthropologists tell us and sociologists tell us is that when human beings gather together, culture happens. We create culture. Being and a way of doing things. So imagine the four of us, the way that we greet one another, the way we speak, the way we hang out, the way that we interact. And then on a larger level, think about how we create culture of language and music and medicine and innovation and engineering and and, and the list goes on. The problem is, as human beings, as Christians, we believe that every single person is fallen and fallen short of the glory of God. So in your mind, you might say, gosh, you know, if Nick, did I get that right? Kyle. Kyle. (laughs) Sorry, man. So you might be thinking, if Kyle just comes to know Jesus, then everything will be fine. It's a heart issue. You say, it's a sin issue. We've got to make sure that he accepts Jesus. And of course, we believe that. The problem is that even before he comes to know Jesus, the reality is as human beings, we create culture, a way of doing things. And here's the thing. Some of it's good culture, 
Some of it's bad. Now listen to this. Does it make sense that for us as men, we're going to create culture that does what? It benefits us. Is that selfish? Yes. Is it human? Yes. We're going to create systems and structures that benefit us. So you might say, oh, heart change, Jesus, yes, Kyle, praise God. <laughs> the problem is, while we celebrate that, we're ignoring the reality, the possibility that broken, sinful people also create broken, sinful systems and structures. So heart change matters, but we're ignoring the significance of institutional and structural brokenness that I would contend with you, politics has a very significant process. So sometimes we, we might say, well, okay, we got this thing. Um, Ruthie, why don't you come up for a second? So Ruthie, preaching on the Good Samaritan, okay? <laughs> so we might say, you know what? We need structural change, structural change, but can you guys step up just a little bit? That's great. I said, oh, yeah, we need women, but why don't you go to the back? <laughs> and um, <laughs> just, just for the just an illustration, Joe Wong. But look how diverse we are. You see what I'm saying? Why don't you come on up? No, let's go back. Because we want to make sure that you adopt majority culture. See you guys next week. Thanks for... <laughs> but you see why? Hearts matter. Politics matter because it deals even if it's uncomfortable, on the necessity for structural change. And it's messy. I want you guys to have a seat. I'm sorry. Thank you guys. I want you guys all have a seat. So listen to this. I wanted to show a picture, and I decided not to because it's too violent of an image. And I wanted to be respectful because I just, I've never spoken here and I didn't quite know how it would be received. So let me just describe it. It's a violent picture because it shows the complicity of cultural Christianity. It's a picture from the Jim Crow era of approximately 60 to 80 hooded KKK people all standing in front of a church with a humongous cross in the back with the, even a larger cross that says, a larger sign that says, Jesus saves. This is why when Christians say it's a sin issue, a heart issue, I would say it's not enough. Now, I go into tons of stories and data in the book about what that looks like, and it's incredibly messy. But we shouldn't be surprised because 
The kingdom is here, but not yet fully arrived. The last thing that I'll say, and we'll close for Q&A, and I'm sure you'll have some more specific questions that I'll pass on to Dave. <laughs> is this. John 4. Today, a lot of us, it's nouveau, in, to talk about justice work, equity work, and I know it's messy. It's, we talk about these things. And this is why I'm so convicted by verse 4 when it says, and now Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Because what I'm suggesting is that you could actually talk about Samaria. You could sing about Samaria. You could spit rhymes about Samaria. You could high church liturgize about Samaria. You could strategize about Samaria. You could theologize and hashtag about Samaria. You could do all of those things and still not walk through Samaria. That's why I think it so specifically points out those words. Now Jesus had to walk through Samaria. Heart change, structural change. That's why politics matter and why I pray that our politics is never that which forms our theology, but it's our theology that shapes our politics. And not only does it give us vigor and tenacity, but it gives us hopefulness, even in the midst of a very difficult, challenging time. Thanks so much.